what's happening with with young people and dating is just um it's really tragic honestly like no one is happy with this you know like i think a lot of these students are you know they're they're not building their dream or or working toward the thing that they've always wanted they're they're working towards getting into law school not because they love the law or legal philosophy or whatever they're trying to get in because they don't know what else to do and because they know it'll impress other people this too apparently there is this kind of glamorization among young people of mental illness mental disorders and then i went to college and realized like okay but these kids are rich and they're at an elite university but there's still this sort of anxiety around them there's still this feeling of you know lack and you know i came to realize like oh there's this this other component too about the way the beliefs that you express hi hi welcome welcome this is the from the new world podcast today we're speaking with rob henderson on the hidden scripts shaping the next generation rob is a phd candidate at cambridge university in moral psychology the writer of the rob henderson newsletter and the inventor of the term luxury beliefs I'm quite excited for this episode because it touches on topics that are close to many people in my life. Universities, dating markets, analyzing social situations, anxiety in Gen Z, luxury beliefs, signaling, word cells, and informal networks. As always, if you'd like to help the show, the number one thing you can do is tell a friend to listen to the show. Really, every episode is different and you never know who would appreciate it. Without further ado, here's Rob Henderson. So the thing that I want to start this interview with is that I think something that's very notable about you is that you can draw long-term and generalizable insights from a lot of the interactions that you had in your own personal experience and back it up with a lot of coherent argument. So just go about explaining how you do that and what goes through your mind when you're in a lot of these types of social situations. Uh, yeah, I mean, when I'm in the situations themselves, I don't necessarily, you know, there's no like sort of conscious calculating or deliberation really going on. A lot of, I guess a lot of what I write about is inspired by sort of after the fact reflections. So if I'm in a situation and you know, I'm just sort of doing whatever comes naturally and, you know, but, but maybe I notice something is off or I notice that people behave in a certain way that I was uh, surprised by. Then maybe later on, you know, maybe when I, when I exit the situation and I'm, you know, I, I think a lot. So maybe, you know, back and you know, I'll sort of reflect on what happened. And then that's when I'll start writing things down and sort of, uh, uh, you know, r- deliver some of my interpretations of what might have happened Oftentimes, this isn't even immediately after. I mean, some of the things I've written about, you know, they've been years and years ago. And I just now sort of with with the benefit of hindsight and maybe a little bit of maturity and, yeah, probably informed by some of the research that I've done and readings that I've uh, completed that I can reanalyze or reexamine some of the things that happened in my earlier adulthood or, or in my youth or something. So... Yeah, it's but the process itself is it's I I don't even know if I could like uh, what like uh, explicitly outline how it goes. It's really just sort of thinking and then it's like almost like like sort of pattern association of, you know, I'll read something in a paper and it'll just sort of stick with me 
And then later on, I'll make a connection when I'm in an interaction or vice versa, where I'm in an interaction. And then years later, I'll come across something in a paper or, or whatever and just think like, oh, yeah, maybe that was what was um, what was going on there um, is, uh, I don't know. So so a few years ago, I, I wrote about this in one of my newsletters a few years ago. I remember I was at this um, uh, I was at no, was, this was like, a, you know, just a gathering, like a social group of people gathering and. There was, uh, you know, so people were sort of deciding, should we go out tonight? Should we not go out? And it was mostly the, the, the women in the group who were trying to decide whether they wanted to go out or not. And then, you know, sort of said, okay, let's go out. And then uh, one of them uh, said, you know, do you guys think I should change? You know, do, I, do you think I should, um, you know, put like my, my clubbing outfit on? Because we were all kind of dressed casually just because we were hanging out for that day. And, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, one of the most of the girls were like, ah, you look fine. It's fine. Don't worry about it. You look great how you are. One in particular was like insistent that she not, you know, that she not change at all. And with that, this uh, this woman just you know went upstairs and changed and came down. And, and I found this interesting that, you know, so, so this this person was like, you know, do you guys think I should change? Everyone says no. And then one insists that she says no. <laughs> and she goes up and does the opposite of everyone's opinion. And um, and, you know, at the time, I didn't really make much of that. I'm like, ah, whatever, you know, just especially at that point, I must have been like 22 or something, not particularly reflective. But then years later, you know, once I read a little evolutionary psychology and sort of understood a little bit more about, you know, just how people are, um, you know, I, I sort of recognized that in that case, what I think was happening was this, uh, you know, this woman was, um, you know, she, I, I think she wanted to probably hear from her friends like that she looked good, you know, even without sort of sprucing herself up. But then, you know, the one who was insistent that she shouldn't change herself was you know, relatively less attractive than, you know, many of the other uh, women in that group. And from my perspective, what was probably happening was that she, you know, didn't want her friend to outshine her any more than maybe she already was. So that's just like a small example. But at the time, I really had no awareness of this. And, you know, it's yeah. So so that's like an example of maybe, you know, what learning a little bit of evolutionary psychology and sort of understanding a little bit more about what's going on with people that little things like that, that maybe at first glance don't make sense where someone says, should I change? Everyone says no. And then they do it anyway. Suddenly it starts to make a little more sense. Yeah, I think the danger of this type of rationalization is that there are all kinds of things that could be the possible explanation. Right. Mm. And especially with something like evo psych or with psychology in general there is a kind of replication problem so you're not you're never completely sure if one thing or one explanation is uh really the right choice and yeah the same that's... deal is true with this kind of like especially with this kind of like individual thing right if you're trying to kind of take that theory and project it back to real life yeah yeah this is always yeah this is a good point and and it's true there there have been some replication failures in you know, the social sciences and the medical sciences. I mean, really, in a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of the disciplines. Oh, yeah. But, um, yeah, my you audience know, will so, know all about that. <laughs> okay. So, so yeah, I mean, it's always, uh, it's, uh, yeah, of course, it's always a tricky game to, to pick, you know, studies who may, maybe won't replicate and then apply them to isolated situations. I take that point. But, you know, I, I think for, for a lot of, at least the sort of sexual and gender dynamic stuff in evolutionary psychology, it has held up pretty well. I think much or most of it has survived a lot of the replication endeavors. Um, so that's, you know, that's one point. And then, yeah, I mean, 
another thing is like it's uh yeah to to use the research and then and then try to particularize it to one point is is also uh dangerous and i mean of course it depends you know if you're just writing a story and a recollection and you know there's probably no harm in that but if you're trying to maybe strategize for the future that can also be tricky at the same time though i mean if you know one of the um you know you know if if, if your readers are familiar with the replication crisis they're probably familiar with uh you know a lot of the um you know sort of the the the, the pitfalls of of thinking fast and slow by daniel kahneman uh, so actually, I'm yeah. not even sure if this, this you know, what I'm about to say has replicated. But one principle I remembered from that book is uh, that people have a tendency to uh, generalize from the particular, but not particularize from the general. And so essentially, you know, the research that he cites, and I think he may have carried out himself, is, you know, people, and, and I think this this actually makes sense to me, people will hear stories. I mean, this is basically how like media works, right? Like people will hear stories. And then like that becomes their framework for understanding. You know, they hear one isolated case of like a plane crashing and then they oh, immediately yeah. update or their process shooting, and think or a vaccine side shoot. effect. Right? Exactly. It's, it's crazy. Right. And, and it's not saw, isolated to one side or the other. Yeah, I think I saw on your was it your Substack? You had a really great post about this, uh, about how, you know, these sort of isolated stories in media can really warp our understanding of the world and about probabilities. And so that's a problem, right? But that's how most people, I think, sort of uh, think about uh, social situations and and planning for the future is just sort of these isolated anecdotes or, you know, these sort of very extreme cases that they see on the media or social media. Uh, in contrast, what I try to do, and I, I don't always succeed, is at least I, I, I attempt to do the opposite of that and try to find studies, statistics, meta-analyses, and then also just sort of, you know, uh, uh, philosophy, old school sociology, things that that appear to be a, a, a little a little bit more robust than, you know, a story that some, you know, someone posted on Twitter or some sort of, you know, an Instagram story or something like that. But but of course, there's there's no sort of perfect way to, to understand things. But but I think that's, you know, it's definitely better than the sort of isolated uh, anecdote case. Yeah, basically, I see this as the question of being an operator in the kind of business sense of being able to aggregate noisy data points that you Mm. can't necessarily control. So if you're running a business or you're running a small team, a small part of a business, you're going to run into problems and you're essentially going to need to pivot and change and adapt. And you can do this in one of two ways. If you're failing at something, you can adapt in a way that kind of overcorrects or you can adapt in a way that undercorrects. And making those trade-offs essentially making those decisions I think is very important and really it has something that's quite dark and maybe quite uh, quite counterintuitive about the real world or at least about the world as which of which we've kind of conceived it which is that in order to make sense of the world you really have to change these behaviors within yourself in a very immeasurable and kind of spectral way mm-hmm yeah. So, so I've seen you, especially in some of your other podcast appearances, I've seen you do this in a very insightful way, I think, where you don't overapply, you don't overcorrect, but you also don't undercorrect as well. And I think a great example of this is when you draw your experiences, uh, when you draw from your experiences at Yale. So do you want to just talk about that for a bit? Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, this is uh, my, 
my experiences at Yale were unexpected and I think to some degree probably <laughs> I guess set me on the path that I'm on now. Uh, not just in terms of my, you know, oh, you know, I studied psychology at Yale and I'm studying psychology at Cambridge, but but also like, you know, in terms of formal education, but also in terms of, I guess, the way that I think about class and about status and you know, sort of the class differences and the desires for status and those kinds of things. Um, you know, I, I guess like I... Okay, so so one of the things that, I, that that happened when I was at Yale was this you know, massive student eruption, you know, probably yeah, a lot of your listeners will will know what happened in 2015 uh, with the Christakis's and the Halloween costume controversy. That was my first semester at Yale. You know, I, I just spent, you know, I just did an enlistment in the military before I got to Yale. You know, before that, I grew up in, you know, sort of low income situation growing up in foster homes. And so it was just a very unique and different environment to me to go to a place like Yale. And I had some understanding of that going in that, you know, these students were going to be from probably rich families, many of them, and they were probably like very academically adept. Many of them come from, you know, expensive private schools or had tutors and, you know, probably had, uh, you know, they're more, more well read or whatever. And so I, I had some, what, I guess, you know, anxieties around that. Oh. Pardon? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, so so that was one. But then I, but I had no idea about like the, so, so economic capital, I understood that, right? There was going to be this sort of gap between us and in terms of sort of our academic uh, preparation. You know, I barely graduated high school. Um, whereas, you know, many of them, they probably all got like, you know, 4.0 or, or above or whatever valedictorian types. So, but, but then I didn't understand this sort of cultural capital aspect where people would, uh, you know, communicate and use different kinds of vocabulary, different kinds of language and so on. And it was tricky for me at first because, you know, at first it seemed like everyone was stridently opposed to, you know, these two professors, the Christakis and with, you know, this email that they yeah, sent out. Yeah, and for the audience, this is the same situation we were talking about with Richard Hanania uh, mm. quite a few episodes ago. Um, yeah, but yeah, continue. So, so, and that was my perception, right? And, but it wasn't the case, you know, upon reflection, you know, I, I distinctly remember. So when I was still, yeah, that, that first semester, I sent an email actually to Jonathan Haidt, sort of just be, be, because I, I knew, you know, by that point that he was sort of one of the few, uh, prominent professors in the world or in the U S who were, uh, who who was who who were sort of challenging this narrative about these professors at Yale being racist or sex or whatever it was like uh, bigoted, and I sent him an email saying like you know just I guess asking for advice and telling him what was going on, and he wrote back something along the lines of you know maybe you can take solace in the fact that you know it's not all the students right like he said like I'd imagine that it's li- not literally one hundred percent of the students who were calling for this you know even the protesters and the you know the students who were marching around and I thought about it and I was like you know what that's right there, it's probably maybe 10%, 20% at the most who are doing this. Uh, and that gave me a bit of comfort. But and, and so so that was like, you know, so so what my my belief about the campus had changed from all these students are just totally out of their minds to okay, so it's just a small number. But then I, you know, I realized, well, then why are they controlling every like the conversation, right? Like, why are why is everyone else afraid? You know, even if 80% of the campus is either neutral or actually disagrees, uh, and, and, and saw nothing wrong with what the Christakis did, uh, why are they remaining silent? And that was when I started to realize like, oh, actually majorities don't matter. You know, if you have a strong and strident and vocal, 
you know, minority of people, um, they can exert their will. And, and I saw that firsthand. And so that actually changed my mind a lot about sort of, you know, the power of majorities and all of that stuff, which I, I think like Kanania, he, he's talked a bit about this too with, uh, with some of his writings. Oh, yeah. so. What do you think of his hypothesis that it really matters that it's women? Like when he was talking about <laughs> the situation with me, he, he, he had this like very striking quote, which was basically that like you have the same people. If you have the same people doing the same thing to the Christakis, but they're all men, um, that it's just that it's just kind of repulsive. That it's that no one no one bats attention to that kind of um, that kind of like vice signaling or that kind of weakness signaling if it's if it's men doing it. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I did. I watched those videos. I was I, I wasn't actually in the Silliman courtyard when Nicholas was getting yelled at. But like I was a student at that time. And like, you know, within within the week, you know, those videos were circulating around campus already. Um, and there was one like, you know, one male student who did like get up in his face. And I don't remember what he said exactly. But oh, I, I remember. You know, I think Nicholas Christakis was trying to appeal to their you know, whatever, they're sort of universal ethics or principles, you know, basically saying like, you know, yes, we're different. Yes, we have these differences. But, you know, of course, we can all come to understand each other, something like that, this sort of classical liberal line. And, you know, this this uh, young man walks right up to Christakis and says, you know, we're not the same, presumably because he's black and Nicholas Christakis is, you know, a white Greek American guy. And so he goes up to the Nicholas, we're not the same, you know, I don't know, says a few other words. And that was it. And I mean, and yeah, I guess it was okay. So I guess that interaction was a bit different in that he wasn't like screaming at him. It was a sort of a, a more sort of domineering sort of low vocal tone kind of like, you know, yeah, it was actually yeah, kind so, of coherent, right? It was kind of making yeah. a point, even if it's yeah. not necessarily. Like and a I think correct it, it, and it went better, I guess, because Nicholas understood what he was saying and mm. so there was like, <laughs> there was the possibility for like a mess, like a shared mutual understanding. Whereas with the, uh, you know, the young women who were screaming at Nicholas, it was, uh, you know, I, I don't think like there was any, there was no way for any kind of shared mutual understanding there. And and I'm not even sure that was the point. Whereas it did seem like the young man wanted to just get Nicholas to acknowledge like, yes, I understand. We're not the same. Fine. Like, fair enough. Like, there's no, you know, you can't argue with that. But but with the women who were screaming at him and it wasn't, they, they weren't making points. Right. So that's, that's interesting. I mean, you know, Hidana's whole thesis about, uh, you know, women's tears and everything. It's, it's provocative. It's interesting. I'm, you know, I think in, in some cases anyway, I'm inclined to agree because I, you know, there's, there's some truth to that. The fact that if, um, <laughs> if you're a man and a woman is screaming at you in public, you have very few options for how to react to that. And so that is kind of a, you know, that is kind of a button that, you know, one sex can press that the other can't in order to, to, to exert their, you know, their will. I'm curious, would that work between women? You know, I, I don't know if a woman could sort of scream in, in that way. To, like if it was Erica Christakis in that courtyard, if it had been Nicholas's wife, I wonder how the, the young women would have would have reacted to her. You know, I, I'm curious what you or Richard would, would, would the, the say The problem about that. is that it's performative, right? It's not actually between, they're not actually trying to convince uh, Nicholas Christakis of anything. They're, they're trying mm -hmm. to appeal to like a kind of authority and like a statistically male authority, right? So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I get that. But I mean, you know, the whole protest was because of Erica's email. 
And now yeah. I wonder if it, if it had been a, a female, like, you know, female faculty member who had been in charge, who, you know, occupies that powerful position, if they would have used a different approach, a different strategy to, um, you know, I guess to, to, to sort of get her to yield and acknowledge the, their, that they were right or that she was wrong in some way. You know, there's there's different, yeah, yeah, different different ways to do that. But I, I do wonder, yeah, if it's two women, how that would play out. Because yeah, if it's two men and one man, you know, suddenly bursts out and screams like that, um, yeah, I mean, I, it, the, very very quickly that can escalate into violence. Um, so so yeah, especially in a in a sort of a group setting like that. There's a great paper I think from from Rob Kurzban at the University of Pennsylvania, or at least he he used to be there. Um, but he had this, you know, one of his findings of something like uh, if if two men are arguing, the likelihood that it will escalate into violence, I think it triples if there's an audience present. So I think mm, there is something okay. about that, that, um, you know, when, you know, because obviously a man can't punch a woman. So, you know, that's just yeah. so, 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 yeah, there, the, the gender dynamics there are, are, are fascinating. Yeah, I think, I don't know, my... What's very interesting to me is that you ask basically anyone in the kind of non-Western world, right? You ask anyone in China or in India or in Africa, uh, and they'll tell you that this is kind of obvious. Even if they're kind of scientists, they're more empirical style researchers. This is just something that's seen as very foundational. Hmm. And... It really is it really is quite striking because I don't think that you I don't think that if you roll the dice a lot of times on western civilization that they always go blank slate right I think there are actually a lot of times let, let's say we have a world without say Hitler as a unique villain right Hitler just never comes maybe there's still a world war 2 but it's just like the, the german leader just wants land right or something like that I don't think we I don't think we run into at least this extent of blank slateism. I think it doesn't really take hold and, and gets to the point where it can deny so many. I mean, this is, is that, maybe a bit more contentious, but a lot of other results that are just obviously true. Is that because so so is the just just so I understand, is that because so you think that because the reason the reason the blank slate ideology sort of captured, uh, you know, the educated classes in the West is is a response to, you know, Nazism and eugenics and that kind of thing. And so in order to like, it sort of sparked a backlash because before that, you know, eugenics was a sort of more progressive, you know, it was, it was championed more by progressives. And so then with Hitler, suddenly there was oh, this yeah. backlash. Is that is that what you're sort of getting at? Yeah, Hitler is this kind of unique villain and it's and he's actually cited or like he's actually referenced explicitly uh, in a lot of these communist doctrines about mm. basically Lysenkoism, that you can't agree with Hitler. You can't have these kind of the same Western notions that Hitler kind of bases ideas on, even like correct, correct parts of them or correct ones that um, that Hitler also referenced, like genetics. And so, so they came up with like all sorts of other bullshit about mm. Um, how crops actually work even and and of course when applying to their their society as well and mm. of course there's no shortage of communist intellectuals in the west this these things proliferate in that way and you can look at explicitly a lot of these arguments that they make and they often do it's not so subtle right <laughs> the reference to hitler is not so subtle yeah well is it even isolated to to the west i mean 
you know, the like communism did capture parts of Asia as well. I mean, China is still, you know, like the most, you know, the most prominent example of a communist country in existence today. And they also held to blank slate ideologies and, no. you know, so. No. Okay. The, yeah. At the time of Mao, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. The cultural I, I had a tweet about this as well, where I was talking about the point that my point was this. China is essentially, China is essentially rational, rational, uh, communism or rational state planning let's say and the west is like lysenkoist capitalism that that's the kind of fragmentation that we're we're looking at right now where china is hyper aware of individual differences china is hyper aware of um biological okay yeah 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 okay yeah yeah but but i mean like managing this stuff have much more technical backgrounds than yeah well today i i i get like you know china's doing uh i mean they're they're openly uh doing sort of genetic what are they like like genetic engineering or manipulation or something gene editing for for iq and all these kinds of things so today yeah that's that's true but i mean historically uh yeah like so during during the time of Mao and the cultural revolution in cambodia as well during the Khmer rouge uh regime so yeah i mean i think just yeah, it's, there's it's, certainly it's, a history of it it's it's naturally appealing i think i so so it's possible. I, I mean, I liked the the line used earlier about you know if you roll the dice multiple times, maybe a blank slate wouldn't have come up. I don't know. I mean, I think, I think that idea of like equality is at least the desire for it is sort of to some degree intrinsic. Not 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 necessarily like the the belief, but the desire for it. Uh, like, like the belief in that, like, I don't think, you know, it's, it's, it's necessarily natural for people to believe like, oh, yeah, we're all sort of equally tall and equally smart and equally talented and attractive and so forth. But I think the desire for not necessarily equality, but the desire that no one is sort of better than them uh, or treated better than them, that seems to be uh, intrinsic based on my understanding yeah, NB, of sort right? of hunter gatherer uh, literature, anthropology, uh you know, sort of these firsthand reports and and so forth. I mean, there's a great book. I, I reviewed this uh, a while back, um, Hierarchy in the Forest by Christopher, I think it's Bame is how you pronounce his name, but he's a, a well-known anthropologist who basically documents this you know, across various hunter-gatherer societies and sort of digging into the anthropological and archaeological research um, that, you know, these sort of small-scale communities, they are extremely... Uh, preoccupied with status and equality and making sure that primarily the males. I mean, one of the interesting things from that book is that um, it's like cross-culturally, it seems like the the adult males have roughly equal status, uh, whereas the, the women and the children are subordinate to them. And of course, even among the adult males, there are sort of uh, uh, like soft leaders, but they don't really exert uh, their will or their dominance. They sort of... Um, or like sort of shepherd the guys, but, but like the, the other men, but, but they don't, um, they don't come on too strong. They sort of help to crystallize agreements. There is this sort of a interesting form of democratic decision-making uh, among the adult males in, in these groups, uh, at least, you know, sort of, the, so, so anyway. Yeah, it's kind of um, manipulative instead of say explicit. Yeah. And, and so, so I think like there is something, I mean, and, and of course, like the, the book is replete with these very interesting uh, uh, accounts from, you know, anthropologists who visit and, you know, the, these guys will say like, you know, any, anytime someone in our, in our tribe 
like takes down a big animal, immediately we all start mocking him and making fun of him, you know, teasing him for how he runs or how he dresses or, you know, uh, uh, making fun of how he laughs. Like basically they're trying to cut him down because he did this great thing. He kills this big animal and helps to feed the group, but they don't want him to think too much of himself. They don't want him to grow arrogant. And so immediately all the other men start start trying to ensure that he's, he, you know, let him know that, hey, just because you did this great thing, that doesn't mean that you're so special, okay? And I think that urge is is present in all of us. And and so I think, you know, in the modern West, it sort of expresses itself in this blank slateism where we don't want to acknowledge that. I mean, but it's interesting, right? Blank slate isn't for everything. It's, you know, we, we don't say this for, um, you know, sense of humor or or I think even for, for things like work ethic, it seems like most of the blank slate stuff, I think, is is primarily isolated to like intelligence and maybe a couple of other traits, but not for not for everything. I mean, at the far end, you even deny like sex differences, like biological sex differences. But, <laughs> okay, yeah. Okay, you true. even say that that's like a specific set of insane people. Yeah. Um, what's Good really point. interesting to me is that we don't have the same kind of. We have the kind of rationalist revolution where we're where we're looking at things empirically and we're kind of getting rid of these instincts, tribalism, um, the naturalistic fallacy that bias us towards. Um, certain directions but this one seems to be like very glaring this seems to be at the scale of if not greater than racism like this kind of envy seems like something that is that would be on the top of my list of impulses to remove and if we can Mm. do it with racism which i think we've actually done a fairly good job of at least containing if not removing then I don't see why we can't do it with this. Like this seems, if if anything, to me, like intuitively, this seems easier. Yeah, this okay. kind of like desire, th- this kind of desire to like hide differences, to like mm. to like sweep them under the rug. Yeah, that is interesting. I mean, so so I'm making my way through this book. I sort of dip in and out of it. Uh, which is it's it's called Envy: A Theory of Social Behavior by Helmut Schock. I think is his name. He's like a German or Austrian guy. This is the name. Um, and so, and and he talks about this about how sort of functional, advanced societies have managed to contain this impulse of envy. And I think it's spot on. I mean, it's like yes, envy is is innate. It's natural to experience it sometimes. But there, you know, cultures can sort of contain it, dial it in a little bit or dial it up if you want. I mean, I think a lot of what happened in in a lot of the communist countries actually and and in Nazi Germany, for that matter, a lot of that was sort of driven by envy and, you know, certain certain people in in prominent positions sort of stoking it and cultivating it and and, and using that to to obtain power for themselves. So so, yeah, it is. I think it's very dangerous, right? Like a lot of the, you know, the political divide seems to be almost like what's like, what's worse envy versus greed. Right. And I think like the belief is that on the right, you know, this is very broadly speaking that the right is sort of driven by greed uh, and the left is driven by, by envy. And both of those things are, you know, not, you know, this is sort of uh, disreputable motives, but arguably envy is worse because it you know it tears things down whereas greed can arguably you know, at least if that's sort of channeled in the right way can build things up so but i guess you know, you could say that for envy too to some extent but but yeah I, I think you're right in that um just because something is inevitable something like envy or something is intrinsic a natural part of human nature that doesn't necessarily mean that there's nothing you can do about it and there are ways to 
to yeah to to thwart it or to to channel it in in more productive ways i mean one of the um uh um the interesting findings in in uh in sort of this within narcissism so so research on narcissism one of the components of narcissism is is actually this kind of uh this admiration you know sort of this seeing other people do well and admiring them and then this other aspect of narcissism is this envy of like sort of wanting to tear them down and so you have these sort of two so those are in conflict aspects. yeah they're in conflict but 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 we all feel it right like we've all felt this you know sort of seeing someone do something really great and admiring it and being impressed by it but we've also had the experience of seeing someone do something great or do well and feeling like you know why them and not me you know or that's not fair or try to make excuses for why they were able to do it and you couldn't or whatever and I think there are ways to sort of, um, su- you know, sort of uh, suppress one and, and, and maybe cultivate the other. Gratitude, too, right? Like gratitude is natural, but I, it seems like there's absolutely nothing in our culture that is helping to, to cultivate, cultivate gratitude. And, and, and it almost sounds like corny, right? There's all these sort of um, weird uh, uh, Yeah, go to church, now. bros. Yeah. Go, go, go to church, children. <laughs> yeah. Well, not even that, right? Like if you like, you know, if you say something that 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 has like a, a whiff of gratitude or, or kindness or something, oftentimes people will, you know, so if you post something nice on Twitter, you know, something about like three things you're grateful for. Uh, oftentimes, I think you'll get some kind remarks, too, but often you'll get some like nasty response, too. Um, whereas if you post something, you know, three reasons, you know, three reasons there, you know, there, there are problems in the world, three problems in the world, something like that, like something negative, um, you won't get the same, I think, degree of, of, uh, you know, people trying to tear you down in response. So, um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, all this is to say that, you know, things that are natural can be, can be sort of, uh, promoted or, or suppressed. I agree with that. Yeah. They can be increased or decreased, even if they're going to be there. Hmm. Um, one question that ties into a lot of what you've already work on is why is why does this seem so much uh so much more popular among the kind of quote-unquote elite class i mean what you would expect is for the richer people to want to want to kind of flex their advantages and you'd want the the poor people this is the kind of marxist conception is that the poor people will rise up and be uh very against those kind of systems but in reality it's kind of the opposite way and i'm wondering why you think that is well what are we talking about like what's like this the system or 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 uh, this kind of idea that some people are better than others oh right oh interesting some people Um, are naturally better than others the blank slate idea no that's 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 true i mean like no like <laughs> i remember like when i first encountered for example uh like like the intelligence research when i was an undergrad i started like reading about because they don't teach you that i mean it's funny i, I studied uh undergrad i got a bs in psychology at you know one of these fancy universities and like i think i had one or two sort of lectures where one of the professors mentioned intelligence but it was just sort of in passing and then i started reading on my own and i'm like oh this is like this is like a sort of rock solid finding in psychology, which is pretty rare and no one's talking about it. But then I talked to my mom who grew up, you know, sort of working class, low income community, whatever. And like I asked her about just sort of uh, what did I say? Something like, um, you know, do you think that people are sort of born smart or do you think that they sort of learn to be smart, you know, through their experiences or through schooling or whatever? And she was like, you know, some people are just, you know, some people are born, you know, you should acknowledge that you can sort of learn and and sort of grow in that way but some people are just sort of born with it and but but that that added and i've talked to other people friends from back home and whatever and like it's it's not not at all controversial uh that 
to say that, yeah, some, you know, you say like, oh, I, I hope your kid grows up to be smart or something implicitly believing that like it is kind of a roll of the dice to some degree. And yeah, I, I my, my, my feeling just through having sort of private conversations and, you know, maybe, uh, you know, maybe after a few drinks or something, a lot of people in the sort of upper middle and upper class, they do uh, believe that a lot of this stuff is genetic or that they have, you know, sort of questions about the, the sort of blank slate ideology. But there has been this sort of taboo uh, that's created this kind of chilling effect where they won't openly acknowledge it. And they have to say that, you know, the reasons for disparities or the reason for kids who aren't doing well or whatever, it's, it's, it's purely due to um, sort of environmental or economic factors. And so I think it's become this sort of fashionable to some degree, I would, I would call it a luxury belief that, you know, everyone is born exactly the same. And the only reason for, for these differences is because of, um, you know, whatever situational factors. And in the long run, I think this does sort of create unrealistic expectations for certain kids. And, you know, for, for, for other kids, they are sort of brought up to believe that, you know, the only reason why they, they are able to do what they do is because of, you know, sort of these, these situational factors too, which I think is also sort of take something away from them. Um, on, on the other hand, though, I, I, I don't like to, to overstress too much, you know, just the, I think smart people on the one hand, it's interesting on the one hand, they do uh, adhere to this blank slate ideology. But part of the reason they do like part of the motive for it is because they overvalue intelligence, right? Like if or or I guess any other factor, but I guess and specifically in this case, it's about IQ is that, you know, they wouldn't become so touchy and adhere to this blank slate ideology unless they believed that this is a very special trait that they themselves somehow uh, assign like a, a lot of a lot more value than they should to it. I don't know. I, I think it's it, quite frankly, I think it's super underrated. Like there, there's all of these mechanisms. R Richard actually talks a lot about this uh, of stuff like civil rights law that essentially bans IQ tests. It's kind of awful. And mm. I think just in general, society would, would be much better if this was brought out and became a lane of explicit competition. But uh, I've no. always I, I have this kind of phrase and I, and I want to talk about this before you kind of give your opinion on it is that this is kind of like a a tool that is used very craftily and very kind of subtly it's it's something that's cultivated over a long long period of power from legacy or legacy power let's say or inherited power against uh, new power so mm -hmm. let, let's just throw away a lot of narratives that are obviously false okay so a narrative that's obviously false is the powerful against the powerless because the powerful just mm. beat the powerless. That's what power means. There is the narrative of old power against each other. And we kind of know what that looks like. That's called prestige. And we kind of know in general how they compete and they generally just agree on the rules. Mm. And we know what new power versus new power looks like. It's called the market. What we don't know and what I think is settled through politics is this fight of old power versus new power. And very central to this fight is how we think about explicit competition, how we think about who is better than who. And this is kind of showing my cards here. I did, I did have like a lot of thoughts about this, and you can hear it throughout the podcast, is that this type of self 
deception or at least public deception let's say maybe maybe they they know deep inside but this pub type of public deception is really trying to just bar the doors behind them and say no no more new power we want to hold on to what we have that's interesting i mean what just what immediately comes to mind is the the debate around uh free speech and i oh yeah i, I don't think it's I mean, I guess to some degree it's still going on, but I remember a couple of years ago, at least, this battle was raging and this question was going about, you know, how is it possible that, you know, it, it used to be the the lefties who loved free speech and the whole like free speech march <laughs> or whatever it was at Berkeley and, you know, whatever, like, you know, and it was the it was the the sort of conservative Christian right wingers who were, you know, uh, um, constantly trying to shut down speech and things have flipped and how did the, how did free speech become a conservative value well and and to me like it was it was pretty obvious all i mean i, I don't want to say it was obvious all along but early on anyway that <laughs> i mean free speech is just for for the people who like like basically if you don't have power you're going to advocate for neutrality and freedom of speech and when you have power you don't want freedom of speech. It, it, freedom of speech in and of itself is not like a, it's not a I guess a what like a natural kind or it's not a uh, inherently uh, it's super counterintuitive. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's counterintuitive. It but it's not necessarily. It's not like a. Na it doesn't naturally belong politically to one side or the other. I think like people have this sort of oh, the left is this open-minded, free, tolerant, whatever, and so they naturally uh, assume that therefore they own this concept of freedom of speech. And this is where all this confusion comes from, where things have flipped around and, you know, but, but that's not, it's not true. Right? Like, like power wants, like you said, like power wants to contain itself. They don't want challengers and freedom of speech is basically, you know, this, this ability to, to sort of criticize and ridicule and challenge and, you know, undermine and, and whatever. So, so all of those things are threatening to whatever, uh, whoever is powerful, whatever the regime is that's in power. And so, then you know you respond with content moderation policies or whatever to to eliminate people who may um, pose a threat to you, and so I think like that it too like the the whole raging debate about free speech is sort of this old power versus new power idea where you know freedom of speech is for the powerless. Um, it just happens to be that I mean, and a lot of these arguments are confused, right? Because you know freedom of speech is for the powerless. So why are people who are supposedly without power trying to argue against it. And, you know, it's, well, maybe, maybe they're not as powerless as you think. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is the kind of setup I want to have leading into your idea of luxury beliefs. And I think you describe them as beliefs that convey status upon the elite while uh, inflicting costs upon the poor uh, or something like that. Right. So Tell me about how you came to came to discover this idea and uh, really what implications it has for what we're talking about now. Uh, yeah, so. So luxury beliefs um, are ideas and opinions that confer status on the upper class while inflicting costs on uh, the lower classes. Um, this idea, I mean, so there's a few different parts to it. So just very briefly, I. Um, of course, it, it, through my, my firsthand experiences at Yale, coming from an unusual background and seeing firsthand what was going on with these students who come from, from these affluent backgrounds, some people have challenged me on, you know, oh, what does upper class mean when you, you talk about luxury beliefs? And I mean, to me, of course, like there's actually no airtight definition. I mean, even, you know, I've, I've read like a lot of the sociological research, um, you know, sort of discussions of class. So one, one I think, uh, useful kind of hard and fast 
definition and is that the upper class is it includes but is not necessarily limited to people who um attend or have graduated from uh, uh, an elite university who have at least one parent who graduated from college, right? So if you're sort of, you know, a a continuing, they call it a continuing generation student, as opposed to a first generation student um, Mm. who had, you know, who attended a a top tier university and, you know, at elite schools um, in the U.S., something like 80% of the students on campus uh, fall into that category. You know, only about 20% are first gen students. The vast majority are continuing gen. So this is, you know, I think, a good enough generalization and these people tend to occupy like the top quintile of, of income and occupational prestige and all, th- all sorts of things. So, so anyway, um, so the upper class, um, and then, and then in addition to those experiences of, you know, these students are, you know, the way that like the things that they get offended by the thing, the, the kind of vocabulary that they use, the beliefs that they hold, um, plus my, reading of um thorsten veblen you know he wrote this this great book called the theory of the leisure class uh in 1899 he veblen was an economist and a sociologist who was writing about the um the elite of his day you know these um these people who would basically signal their status their material goods through expensive hobbies you know he writes about you know the men in their expensive tuxedos and women in their evening gowns attending these fancy events and you know, beagling and golfing and butlers you know he even called butlers status symbols too like almost saying like you know they they don't even actually like having the butler they don't necessarily need it but they just like other people to know that they have one um and then i would read i, I later read some some of uh, pierre bourdieu's work he wrote this great book called distinction um where he talks a lot about uh, like tastes and habits and customs. And he talks about uh, what he calls the triarchic structure of social class, uh, the sort of uh, class encompassing, uh, so, so membership into the upper class encompassing these three qualities of, I think it was like uh, education. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was, yeah, it was literally like education, uh, income, and and then you know your sort of habits and your mannerisms you know what he called habitus your sort of outlook of, of the world too and so so realizing like okay so so there's you know classes have always existed and sort of this important overlooked aspect of american life i read paul fussell's work too he wrote a great book called class a guide to the american status system and i grew to realize like okay so you know i grew up thinking classes about money Maybe it had something to do with education too. You know, going to college was this respectable thing where I grew up, and you know, a lot of the sort of poor parents wanted their kids to go to college. Uh, but you know, it was sort of my belief: oh, they want to go to college because they want to make money. But then I would, you know, learn about uh, you know people who already had money, but they still wanted to go to college. And then I went to college and realized, like, okay, but these kids are rich and they're at an elite university, but there's still this sort of anxiety around them. There's still this feeling of, you know, lack and you know, I came to realize like, oh, there's this, this other component too, about the way the beliefs that you express uh, go a long way to establishing your position and to obtaining jobs uh, and getting into graduate school and, you know, whatever, medical school, law school, whatever. And so all of these things, you know, the sort of reading and the interactions and everything sort of gave rise to this belief that, oh, like luxury beliefs have replaced luxury goods. Uh, you know, in part because luxury goods have become more affordable. It's uh, clothing and material items are a noisier signal today of someone's social class. You can't necessarily tell just by someone walking down the street. You know, you can't necessarily immediately tell, you know, is this person rich or poor? Whereas 100 years ago, it was much easier to, to do that. 
Um, but now if you hear, you see someone walking down the street, but then you have like a 15 minute conversation with them and ask them a few questions, uh, the way that they express their opinions and the way that they talk, suddenly you'll, you'll have a much better uh, signal of their class, you know, whether they were educated where and, and so forth. And so the luxury beliefs have become that sort of uh, that, that kind of metric of, of class and status. Yeah, well, it's really interesting hearing your work for the first time. And maybe this is the closest thing to like, into like me talking about my background that anyone will ever get, because I really dislike doing that. Um, but I kind of come from an outsider perspective. I was a uh, I was a child of immigrants growing up in basically like a suburb of Toronto, pretty, mm. pretty poor, not, we were never, we never had problems with food, but we had problems like we got evicted once. Right. Mm. Um, but essentially I had this, I had this weird situation where uh, I did well on some math contest and got invited to a, to a magnet school basically. And then from there I had another, that school had a very good program, which was essentially leading to the, uh, International Olympiad in Informatics, which I eventually did. And so I had this network of people who uh, I still consider to be like just far, just like way higher quality people than a lot of the people at these kind of Ivy League colleges or these kind of prestige colleges. And and really, it's like night and day because there's like there's MIT and then there is like everything else. And I know MIT is technically not Ivy League school, but like the people at MIT are just so much high quality thinkers Hmm. Then, then like even Harvard, Har- Harvard is also relatively good. Um, but no, like just not. going to like, he- here's my, here's my kind of experience, right? So I, I can like go to MIT and I have a kind of math, math background, uh, kind of uh, computer science background. I go to MIT, I can talk to like strangers. They might not even be in math. They might be in like biology or something. And they'll have really interesting and intriguing things to say. They'll have like novel stuff that they're that they're really constantly talking about and, and like cycling through them. And even if they're like takes on politics, their politics are like super interesting. They're they're not like they're not predictable at all. But you go to even like a Harvard, and I think Harvard is the is like the least bad one. There there is this kind of not just conformity, there's this kind of like hyper hype, not necessarily sensitivity in the kind of political sense and the kind of like snowflake sense, but sensitivity into as in like a hyper awareness of the of the present situation and trying their best to kind of like game whatever social interaction it is. Hmm. And this ends up, this just ends up with them like not expressing that many interesting ideas. And it just seems like very unfortunate. Yeah, yeah, that is, I mean, they're, they're, I mean, I've been to Harvard a couple of times, but I'm assuming like the the students at Yale weren't that much. Yale is probably crazier. I think it was uh, Matthew Iglesias had this. Uh, I think yeah. it was him. it was like higher variance. Yale's the worst one. Yale's the worst <laughs> you know, one. Well, Yale lost. Yeah. Well, Yale, Yale lost. I mean, yeah, it's it's the worst. But then some. Yeah, I think it was him or someone else. A comment maybe it was like Yale is a higher variance because they also have a lot of great people too. Um, I think what happened is that like you know Yale attracts you know and then cultivates like, this kind of lunacy and then. You know, they, it sparks this sort of uh, backlash of like you know students who group together. I mean, I was I was members, you know, like the Buckley program and some of these great, you know, this, this, so this, this the university does have a lot of great people too, but I think a lot of it is like a response to what's going on on campus, and they cluster together and they're like, oh, just find me a sane person, and they group together, cluster, whatever. So, anyway, uh, I think you're right that there's there, there's this kind of sensitivity, there's this prickliness and this hi- yeah this hyper awareness. I mean. They, they, there's this concept in psychology called uh, self-monitoring of like, you know, yeah. whether you're a high or a low self-monitor. And I think a lot of students at Ivy League schools, top tier schools are are high self-monitors. 
very aware of how they come across to other people, how other people come across to them, overanalyzing every gesture, um, you know, the, every kind of uh, statement and the way that it's expressed and so forth. Um, you know, and this this gives rise to a ton of anxiety. I mean, I you know, I, I would say that like kind of the 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 I mean, if you include prescription meds, like the amount of drug use that I saw on campus rivals like any kind of like poor dysfunctional community that I that I lived in growing up. And so, um, yeah. So like, yeah, you know who Zhang Tuanye is, right? Yeah, yeah, she, she's she's great. Called iGen, and one of the most striking data points from that book is that uh, the the percentage of uh, people, I think, from 14 to 24 uh, with anxiety disorders went from <laughs> uh, went from like under 25 percent to around 60 percent, a little over 60 percent uh, from I think, the 80s to, to um, when did she write the book? Like 20, 20, 14, 2015. Oh, OK. I, think oh, different book of hers. Huh. I don't know. I, there's she's, she's written a few books, so so it's possible I'm getting the Yeah. But 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 either way, that's an insane statistic, whether it's 2009 or 2014 or whatever. Um, I mean, I, I, yeah, that's, oh, that, 2017, that's... 2017. Oh, really? Gen. Okay. Okay. Good. Yeah. I mean, millennials well, but this one's about Gen Z. Yeah. Okay. I'll have to check that one out, but yeah, that is, uh, that's wild. And I mean, I, I would imagine like much of that, you know, these anxiety disorders and she's, she's written about narcissism too, that a lot of this is actually isolated within the sort of upper strata, you know, the kids of upper and upper middle-class families, um, I mean, I don't think 60% of people are in the upper strata. Oh, is that what um, it was 60% overall? Yeah. Oh, uh, what? Well, yeah. wait a minute. That doesn't even make sense to me that that many kids would eat, like even even get like a diagnosis for this. Because I don't think... Yeah, I think but... Okay, here's the methodology. I think they pulled... They essentially pulled out, pulled the yeah. symptoms. So they did the same uh, kind of diagnosis test as as you would have, and you know how, how this works, right? You don't literally pull every single person, but yeah, you can right. Take a random yeah, well, I'd be curious then, like, were these? I mean, were these sort of convenient samples of like you know what, like like undergrads or like you know families uh, that are somehow associated with the university, or did they literally like take like a representative sample of the U.S. or or did they control for socioeconomics? I mean, yeah, I'd be curious to know. That's that's an insanely high figure. Then if that's like. Yeah. So anyway, I, I thought, thought that was sixty percent of. Um, I thought you meant sixty percent of of uh, university students, something like that. But um, no, no. Yeah, that's that's wild. Yeah. So it actually makes a lot of sense to me because a lot of a, lo- a lot of what are considered like a lot of these questions, basically, of of diagnosis for anxiety disorders, a lot of them are considered virtues. Right. And, mm. and of course, they're, they're like phrased differently. They're phrased in a more neutral way in these kind of diagnoses. But for example, like the, the, the endless promotion of like high empathy, this is something that I think is just extremely disastrous mm. because uh, really like empathy is a kind of emotional impulsiveness. Right. That this is what it is. And is it it's almost kind of this weird hedging behavior where it's like, okay, people, our kids can't control themselves because they're all on social media and stuff like that. So we're going to like encourage them to have empathy. And do you know what that is? That's the manifestation of their social media addiction in their ordinary interactions. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so there was a, I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with this book and many of your listeners against empathy by Paul Bloom. Excellent book that, that delves into the, you know, the, 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 the problems with empathy, critiques some of the uh you know the sort of pro-empathy advocates and it is really uh 
I mean, yeah, th- I think that book did absolutely zero to contain the spread. I mean, it's gotten worse. I think that book came out in like 2016, 2017, and it, things have only gotten worse from there. But it's, uh, yeah, I think yeah, well, sort it's of a all rational stuff, book, right? It's not reaching these people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the kind of book that a you know, yeah, against empathy is going to attract a certain kind of person, and obviously not the people who are pro empathy or or even you know somewhat sympathetic to empathy. But but yeah, it's uh, it, it, the the whole like I, I didn't even realize this. I've I've been having I guess ha- wait, how old are you, Cactus? Uh, we we don't we don't talk about that on on, on the okay. podcast. Well, I'm guessing you're younger. I'm in my and I'm yeah. in my twenties. Okay, yeah. Okay, so you're younger than me. I've had a few conversations yeah. with yeah people who are like you know like whatever uh, younger millennial. <laughs> Sorry, I'm getting a call here. <laughs> Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Younger millennial or, um, yeah, younger millennial or, or what, like Gen Z types, like, yeah, late teens, early twenties. And they're telling me, cause I'm not on TikTok. I'm not really like, you know, whatever, just up to speed on, on like that kind of culture. But apparently there is this whole like glamorization of, oh, and, I, and I've read some of Freddie DeBoer's stuff. He's written about this too. Apparently there is this kind of glamorization among young people of mental illness, mental disorders, and, it seems like a cheap way to like like performing it's a mental identity. disorder yeah. yeah to to obtain status i think a lot of it honestly so i found this really interesting tweet it was it went viral you know it had i don't know 5000 retweets or something but there was this it was this black woman who tweeted something like um you know, and, and I think it was meant to be sort of tongue in cheek, but it was something like, you know, every time you call a white person out on their bullshit, you find out that they grew up poor, uh, are, are um, you know, LGBT and have a mental disorder. And, <laughs> and, and, you know, it was sort of this kind of joke about like, you know, white people, whatever. And so so then like all these comments were like, yeah, that's true. You know, a lot of people were agreeing with her. And to me, this was really interesting to, because it, you know, of course, it's just a tweet. It's an isolated case, whatever. But. But I do think there is this kind of motive here of like a lot of um, especially a lot of like kind of young white kids who or or basically, I guess, anyone who isn't uh, a member of a, you know, historically mistreated group who can quickly adopt that identity by saying that they're bipolar or have disassociative identity disorder or what have you, because then immediately they get put into that victim sign and ask you like if, if which, which, um, which sex of white people are doing this? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. You know, ask, uh, ask Gene Twangy. Um, I'm not sure, but, uh, you know, but I think it's funny that, you know, I, I would love to see which of these, like where this has spiked the most. I mean, I know Jean herself has shown these sort of spikes in narcissism, but one thing I haven't seen oh, yeah. is, uh, you know, any of these, you know, people who claim to have a disorder without actually getting an official diagnosis from a doctor, they just claim they have it and make some TikTok video or something. You know, they never claim to have a narcissistic personality disorder or antisocial <laughs> or psychopathic personality or Don't encourage you know, them. like like sadistic or you know and any of these kinds of like darker cluster b disorders uh, borderline right like none of these yeah. are are uh, uh you know adopted as identities and you know i i guess like th- those don't garner the same kind of sympathy i mean that in itself is interesting like which personality disorders get you uh you know confer status versus which which don't i mean have you heard of the term word cells is this the uh, shape rotator meme? Yes. Yes. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I, I, a little. 
Yes. So I had the I had the inventor of that uh, of that term. He's like a machine learning engineer. So we talked about machine learning. Oh, Rune. Yeah, Rune's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rune. Yeah, he's awesome. And uh, I think that this is this is really like saying something about two kind of parallel worlds that you can live in. Right. You can choose to live in the kind of high high verbal world where I think these these things really work, and you can live in the kind of uh, statistical or, or, or numerical world where, where they don't. Uh, and it is like very interesting to see because I'm kind of on the, on the border of these things. Of course, I, I, I do very word silly things in public. I run a podcast, I write a newsletter. Um, but, but my day job is like mostly not that right. Or like almost is completely not that. Um, and so what I Are see you a shape is rotator? that I see, huh? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I, I do like machine I like literally do machine learning as a right, right. job. So yeah. Um so what I really see, uh actually no, we can we can return back to this. What are what are your thoughts on the on the word cell and shape rotation? Because I feel like I'm missing a very good moment here. Oh, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I can get Rob Henderson on record about where the cells <laughs> and shape rotators. I mean, I've I, I like I, I've never actually personally met Rue, but I've listened to him on a few podcasts. I listened to him on uh, Kyle Cashew's podcast and some others. He's great, um, and and I follow him on Twitter. He's you know he's 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 good on Twitter too. Um, I mean, I I think there's something to it, right? Like obviously, well, there's there's actually more than two subdomains of of intelligence. But like, you know, this is, you know, that's just like getting into the weeds of like, whatever empirical research. But I think as a kind of a meme, and as like a shorthand heuristic, there is something there about like how you can have a tilt one way or the other. Um, a lot of people who've taken the SAT or the GRE or any kind of like standardized test like that, you know, there's, you know, there's usually a little bit of a disparity, right? Like in, in IQ in general, there's this idea called positive manifolds, which basically means that if you score high on one subdomain of IQ, you tend to score high on all of them, you know, and if you take any IQ test that you score high, you'll tend to score high on any of them. It's kind of the whole principle behind G. But um, even still, right, like you, you can see these, these distinctions. And actually, the higher up you go, in IQ, the more uh, distance there is between the subdomains, the more sort of scatter there is. Yeah. So if you're really good at math, you tend to be, you know, higher than average in your verbal skills. But there is going to be a larger gap between uh, those two. So I think like when you once you get to the point where you're interacting with really smart people, which Rune does, which I'm sure you do, uh, you know, then you will sort of notice uh, a larger gap between them. But the thing is, like, even if you know, even if you score really high in your quantitative skills and your verbal skills uh, maybe aren't quite as high, your verbal skills are still like way higher than the typical average person, right? And so I think that's also important to keep in mind. It's not like, uh, you know, if you're if you're a really good word seller or whatever words, you know, if you're a word sell, then um, then what? Then you're then you're sort of uh, like really deficient in your math skills. You're deficient maybe relative to a lot of the people you interact with in your daily life and other highly educated people, but your math skills are still going to be better than than the average person. Um, but yeah, I think it's uh, it, you know it's fun and it's interesting, and I know it, it got a lot of uh, journalists upset, so I'm I'm all for it. Awesome, awesome, yeah. So. I've kind of set the table here. This is usually what I do in in podcasts: is that I load all of the all of the ideas that either I I had or and that I want to introduce, or that uh, of course that my guest had, and then we tackle one really big problem okay. or a really big question. And he, here's how I want to frame the question. I actually talked about this a little bit with Steve Shu, which is that you have these 
old institutions, right? You have these old prestige institutions, you have journalism, you have uh, universities, you have kind of state bureaucracies. And you see this springing up, this, this blossoming, really, of informal circles around them. So you might have attached to a university an informal circle of people who all know each other's uh, tech skills, who all know each other's strengths and weaknesses and can refer each other both to jobs, to new projects, and really get these things started. Like if you look at something like as infamous as, say, or famous, I guess, as the PayPal Mafia, uh, which includes Elon, which includes uh, Peter Thiel, David Sachs, a lot of people who are uh, famous for building things and also famous for uh, influencing things now, then there, there are all these types of prototypical networks that are springing up, partly enabled by social media, where the people who want to have explicit competition hierarchies basically can. Interesting. Okay, so so is the idea here that that because of social media and because of what this, I guess, this new ability to create networks, this is what upsetting the the sort of uh, yeah and establishments and the, and the, the old the, ways that people made networks. Yeah, and the fact that the establishment has kind of committed to them uh, committed themselves to this uh, to this. Uh, status competition essentially status yeah. is untethered to reality or untethered to kind of basic basic facts about some people being better than others i mean it's really interesting uh, to really, see you yeah. can see it with like i mean you mentioned earlier so you have a sub stack i have a sub stack now you're doing you know you're doing this podcast a lot of people now are you know a lot of smart people now are kind of going independent or semi-independent and I mean, you can see like, it seems like every six to eight months, the, you know, some legacy media outlet does a hit piece on Substack or, you know, tries to undermine it or undercut it in some way. And I think a lot of that is driven by this, you know, this fear of market competition, you know, this whole, you know, your, your uh, paradigm earlier of new power versus old power. Um, yeah, Substack is attracting, like, I mean, even if the vast majority of Substacks aren't, you know, particularly interesting, right? Like, you quickly discover, you know, like, based on who you follow and who you know and whatnot, like, the the good the good content rises to the top. And I think, like, most people who whose Substacks are well-known are, like, at least as good as, you know, the typical average piece you'd find in any legacy, legacy media outlet, you know, in terms of uh, oh, yeah. quality and so forth. And so, um... You know, I'm reminded of this. Uh, I, I, I guess it's it's so, it somewhat connects. There was this interesting piece. I think it was in Foreign Policy. Uh, it was it was basically uh, this story of this influencer. She had like this huge Instagram account of like I don't know half a million followers or something, and she had you know produced her own video content or whatever. She was doing very well. Um, you know, as a social media person. And I guess she, you know, she posted some tweet about how she got a job as a sports reporter for, I don't know if it was ESPN or some, some like, you know, well, like prominent outlet. And, you know, when she announced it, like, you know, she got a ton of flack from all of these people uh, in her comments section. And these were people with Ivy League degrees, you know, people who went to Columbia Journalism School or, you know, they went to Harvard and studied English or whatever it was, like people who jumped through the hoops you're supposed to jump through in order to become a, you know, a reporter or whatever on TV, right, to get that kind of a job. And here's this person. I don't know if she went to college or not, or if she did, I'm guessing she didn't go to like one of these fancy ones. 
but they they were upset because she played a different game and then she sort of won the same prize that they were all competing for. They're like, wait a minute, you know, I went to an elite school and I studied the right subjects and worked at these sort of low level media outlets and so forth. And this person, you know, didn't do any of that. She just gathered a huge following and, and an audience who's, you know, of course, I'm, to some degree, they're interested in what she looks like, but maybe also interested in what she has to say. And they were furious at this. And I think there is something here about like why there are these, um, you know, these very, what, like these complexities around social media. It's not just about like, you know, opinions being expressed and whatnot, but they also really want to control like who gets to have an audience and who doesn't. But yeah, yeah. I mean, so, so that, that was like, that's sort of my, my interpretation of, of what's going on with like the, the sort of, uh, yeah, the, I, I mean, I think there's like a, a lot of envy going on, a lot of power games, but, but yeah, I think, uh, the, the situation now is, I mean, I, it seems like the, 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 the quality will eventually win out, but there is a sort of, uh, we're in this sort of like, uh, the dip right now where the, the battles are still raging. Yeah. And you know what you do in the dip? You buy the dip. Um, <laughs> Uh, that would probably be not a great thing to do right now. Uh, this is not investment advice. Uh, but oh, all right. What is I find like very interesting is that there's this kind of doomer narrative about essentially things creeping through legacy institutions, things like um, quote unquote wokeism, this kind of social progressive ideology, the kind of self censorship, so on and so forth. And what I really see is that there's something creeping back in the opposite direction. And it started with tech. Maybe it's because I'm one of the few people who are actually like quite adjacent to tech. I'm, I'm surprised that someone like David Sachs hasn't talked more about this. But there's this creeping back in the other direction where people who are really at the top of the, that kind of uh, talent hierarchy, this kind of explicit competition hierarchy, are just saying we've had enough of this. We're going to do the explicit competition. We're going to talk about how good we are. We're going to we're going to like we're going to talk about very, very technical ideas. And we're going to basically like self sort through our own kind of private networks. And that I don't think this is just tech anymore. I think most people who are into physics are doing this. Most people who are into hard sciences are, are catching up and it'll go in the other direction. And I think, like you said, with Substack, there's already this being done with independent journalism, although maybe it's a little bit different, right? You, you It's not as quite the same thing with kind of, um, purely measurable skills like that. But you do have the situation, I think, where there is this piggybacking off of legacy institutions, where the kind of social mechanisms that uh, that have existed before are just are just kind of being subverted. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I do see that happening. I guess one question I would have about this is like, how like, with without the you know, legacy institutions, whether it's the university system or, you know, where you you used to work. I mean, because like the Substack example is easy, but I, I mean, I guess like the physics and and tech uh, domains are 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 instructive here too. Is that like one way you quickly identify quality is based on you know, do you have a degree and where did you last work, and so you know, what I'm seeing with, you know, with, with, with writing, for example, a lot of the people who are raking it in on Substack, you know, they, they, uh, fled legacy media outlets. Um, and a lot of the, the sort of academics and intellectuals and techies who are also sort of clustering together, that's in large part, 
they 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 trust one another's competence and and their skills because of their association with legacy institutions or you know so, so i guess like in the future you know w- what will like will will we continue to use those same metrics or how will you quickly identify i guess like who's worth collaborating with and whose network do you want to join um if not with those institutions and i guess this is sort of a I know an ongoing discussion about like should we sort of try to like like prevent you know the the ideologies and the dogmas from taking over these legacy institutions or should we you know sort of give up and move on and try to find another way to you know something else to build build something new um but in the interim right like how do you how do you determine you know who's uh how do, how do you find quality in all in in, in, in such a you know in a world with with so much uh, information, so much noise, and so forth. Yeah. So here's the thing, and maybe this is a bit different with maybe this is a bit different with writing. I, I think it is. Hmm. But in a lot of places, you can find quality just by sorting by quality, right? Just by like explicitly saying, like, here's what we're going to measure. Um, guys, if you want this job, do it, right? Hmm. Uh, and that's the thing. It actually takes a lot of obstruction and a lot of ideology to basically just like ban IQ tests, ban basic competence tests. Uh, Richard Hunania said that um, probably if you try to give journalists a statistics exam in order to uh, in order to have a job qualification, it would go against disparate impact. You have to have this very <laughs> thick ideology to like to like infect the world with stupid. Right. Like moving things into it might be kind of instinctive in some way because of envy or whatnot, but covering up and hiding explicit hierarchies is really difficult because as it turns out, there are plenty of things in real life that you can just assess and that are highly correlated with ability, whether it's your uh, ability to work on past engineering projects, past software projects, so on and so forth, or just like an IQ test. Mm. And in fact, I think even if you have say, a more social mechanism, like just like who do you have in your personal network? Even then, if you have a judgment that's being made that's at least somewhat correlated with the kind of explicit quality of someone, with what they're actually good at, what they're capable of doing in the real world, then I I really don't think that this is nearly as difficult of a problem as most people suggest that it is. Maybe in more subjective fields, this is not quite the case. But even then, I think the social network mechanism, it's worked pretty well. It's pretty worked pretty well for the kind of heterodox space, for the kind of uh, basically like independent independent style writers. And yes, some of them are from legacy institutions, but also some of them aren't. And I, I think those people are, are doing fairly well, too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess I agree with that. Like if you have a, a free market system where people can spot talent the way they want and there will be sort of filtering mechanisms that arise organically that people can determine who's talented and who's not. And I mean, yeah, there's a, you know, many writers have discussed this. The one that comes to mind is uh, the evolutionary psychologist, Jeffrey Miller in his book spent writes about this, about how universities are essentially, uh, you know, schemes to like hoard talent uh, because, you know, basically IQ tests would be cheap and efficient and quick and the universities want to charge, you know, extortionate prices, uh, essentially for like a four year long IQ and conscientiousness test. Um, 
So, so yeah, I mean, I think if there was a way to, you know, what, like if there was a way to make those things freely available, then maybe, maybe it would work and, and we wouldn't necessarily need to, you know, to, to use these other sort of noisier and more inefficient and prolonged mechanisms to, to pinpoint talent. So, so yeah, I mean, if there was a way to do that, I think there, I mean, that would be, that would be a good thing. I mean, a lot of, you know, basically people, people in power want to hold on to it and they want to prevent methods, you know, other kinds of methods for this. I mean, you know, part of the reason why universities are like, why there are so many for-profit universities and why it's become so, so pervasive, despite like, I think the U.S. has something like a 45% college dropout rate. Um, So something like half of high school seniors go on to, you know, this is in the U.S., go on to go to college, and then about half of them drop out. Uh, But despite this, we have all these universities open. And part of it is because, right, like you have all these people with graduate degrees who want jobs. And so they never want to see a university shut down. You know, I was seeing all these articles in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, all these outlets saying, you know, because of the pandemic, because of the lockdowns, you know, a lot of these schools aren't receiving as many applications as they had in years past. And, you know, there's a stagnation and there, you know, a lot of it is spun as this, um, it's a crisis in higher education. But I was reading it thinking like, maybe this is good. You know, you, like most people don't need to be going to college. It's not, you know, they're, they're, like maybe we can find other ways, like you're saying, to, to, to find talent. And not everyone should be going, right? Like spending four years. Yes, absolutely. And then like, you know, but but again, like half of them are going to drop out anyway. If if a lot of these students knew up front that there was a 50% chance that, you know, maybe you wouldn't graduate depending on your sort of field of study. And, you know, there's all this, so this belief that if you go to, you know, we, we get these like sort of broad statistics that are, you know, that, that don't necessarily represent your actual individual odds of success but you know people oh if you get a bachelor's degree you're going to earn a million dollars more in your career or something like that but that's like you know this sort of aggregate statistic across all all majors but then if you you know whatever if you get a bachelor's degree from you know maybe a, a certain university in a in a not so lucrative discipline then maybe like your odds of graduation are low and then your your sort of lifetime expected earnings are not that much higher than if you hadn't gone there uh, brian kaplan writes about this too that there's just yeah, a the lot of misunderstanding. Education. Yeah, there's a lot of misunderstandings, I think, about about college. Um, so, so it's yeah. not only that, but it's a basic kind of statistical argument, right? Like people, people say, I've I've heard this from plenty of of university students that their guidance counselor essentially told them you should go to university because the average person who goes to university <laughs> makes more money. Yeah, right. Like right. either either the mean or the median, mm. and. It doesn't take a lot of statistical understanding to know that this makes no sense. Because, of course, the person who's going to be most on the fence, the person who's the marginal person, really considering, hmm, should I or should I not go? I feel like that's going to be quite far from the average. And, of course, you have you have a lot of exceptions. But it turns out that... it. It turns out that you have all these people who are either uh, did not graduate at all or graduated and have student debt and can't find jobs. It's like you introduced all of these marginal people. Of course, you're bringing down the average. And of course, you're introducing people who are very likely to be below that average and not actually getting the value out of it. So and the funniest thing is, is that this is is kind of like a math test, right? It's like if, if you fall for this, 
then maybe you especially <laughs> shouldn't be going to college. Well, you know, high school guidance counselors, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe they too would fail uh, the statistics test. Um, yeah, I mean, w- there was a paper that came out a couple of years ago, uh, basically looking at, you know, the uh, Americans verbal IQ over time. And what they found was that the average college graduates verbal IQ has declined since the 1970s. Right. So, you know, I don't I don't exactly remember like how much lower it was, but, you know, it was it was noticeably lower uh, compared to 1970. And, you know, I think in 1970, something like 15 percent of Americans had bachelor's degrees, whereas uh, today it's around uh, 30 or 35 percent. So so, you know, twice as many or more compared to the 1970s have have bachelor's degrees. But what was interesting about that paper is that um, overall, uh, verbal IQ remained the same, right? And so basically from 1970 to I think it was like 2016 or whenever the end of their data set was, uh, overall verbal IQ was exactly the same, but among college graduates it had declined. And what could possibly explain this? Well, basically what happened, what looks like happened is that college doesn't actually change anything, right? Like going to college doesn't raise your IQ at all, right? Essentially like everyone's IQ remained the same uh college graduates iq slightly lowered but the reason is because more people went to college and those people who went to college had lower verbal iqs and they went to college and they never they didn't really uh boost their iq through through those four years of education so of course not you know this is very much like the sort of uh what is it like the sort of human capital versus signaling model it doesn't really seem like education contributes to human capital it doesn't really seem to boost intelligence i mean i know brian kaplan has written at length about how you know inept college graduates are at you know, basic reasoning and statistics and writing and arguments and all that kind of stuff, uh, you know, before and after, right? Like a lot of the studies he cites are like, you know, they take college freshmen and have them do these kinds of tests and then they take them when they're seniors and do the same thing. And there's really no difference at all in their ability to tell a reason or, or um, uh, whatever. So, so, so yeah, I mean, the, yeah, the point is that like, you know, college purports to be this thing where, where they're, they're sort of teaching you to learn, but, you know, it doesn't really seem to, to be the case. I mean, at least as measured by IQ tests, it's arguable, I guess, that maybe they're learning something else or they're, you know, four years of something, but but definitely not, um, you know, it's not making you smarter uh, in terms of in terms of your sort of formal formal intelligence. Yeah, and what's very interesting here is that you can have people who are who are kind of all already very eminently successful people who get kind of high paying jobs people who obviously have technical skills who had these technical skills before going to university and they'll still they'll still attribute their success to the university and it's it's quite strange to me i wonder if that's just sunk cost you know i mean you spend four years And you want to believe it was like for something like no one wants to believe that they they spent four years <laughs> and a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand plus dollars and it was all just you know jumping through some bullshit hoop to to signal to your employer that you're you know like not dumb and you're willing to work hard like I I think you want to believe like that was it did something to you it changed you whatever I mean I you know I I, I get that that you you know you don't want to you don't want to feel like that was just time wasted. Um, and I think just naturally, that's probably a healthy impulse too. like, I think it's, you can very much fill yourself with despair. If you think like all of these experiences you think meant something were actually just, you know, things that you went through, but you would have become the same person you were anyway. Yeah. So you had this very interesting point on a podcast, I think, which is, uh, basically that the 
number one value that you get is not even the signaling uh, from universities, but instead the dating pool. <laughs> and uh, I kind of want you to explain that. All right. Um, yeah, I mean, essentially, when you when you enter a university, I, I think I'm drawing actually a lot of this. I'm probably cribbing from from Brian Kaplan too. Um, which is, yeah, when you enter a university, um, you're especially like a, a, a top tier university. You're surrounded by people who are, of course, very smart. They're sort of selected through this filtering mechanism, and now, uh, yeah, that's that's sort of who you, who you can date now. I mean, it's it's even if even if you're sort of down on your luck, uh, but you have you know if you, you go to Harvard or something, you have this degree, and maybe you're not doing so well in your career and what have you. Just by dint of the fact that you have that that badge, um, people will you know like like women or whoever, like, you know, whatever, people will be willing to date you just because of where you went to school. And because like, it's, um, it's sort of this, uh, this uh, amulet that allows you to access this, this, this kind of higher quality dating pool. Um, and in fact, I think Kaplan even does, uh, you know, he, he, he reports some studies and, and it was, this is all in sort of the, I think this was in the case of against education about, um, yeah, how, assortative mating has been on the rise and it's not just him there's been other research on this too but yeah assortative mating has been on the rise uh you know basically in the past there was a lot more sort of educational and socioeconomic uh disparity between husbands and wives you know i think it was usually going one way right where usually the husband would go to (laughs) university and whatever and be like become an executive and marry his secretary who didn't go to college at all something like that or a doctor who would marry his nurse and back then you know in the 1960s nurses didn't really require like a ton of education like they do now because credentialism's got out of control but anyway so 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 what's happened now is that like because more people are going to college and because whatever like geographical sorting and all of this stuff now people are going to college and then they don't go back home right like if you're from some podunk town in ohio or northern california like me you don't go back there right like you go to a university on one of the coasts and then you relocate to san francisco or la or boston or new york or miami and you know and then you are around people who graduated from university just like you in these sort of urban metropolitan areas and that is sort of your your dating pool for the rest of your life now. And the sort of flip side of this, of course, is that a lot of these other places languish and, you know, these these other, you know, the, the dating pool for them gets worse, right? Because a lot of the human capital, the attractive dating options who maybe in times past would have either returned or maybe never gone to college in the first place would have stayed in their local communities. They, you know, relocate and then they go, you know, uh, move to move to cities where there are more economic and romantic opportunities. So this is yeah, the I mean, the sort of mating thing is a massive contributor to inequality. I read one paper showing something like two thirds of the economic inequality uh, over the last 50 years can be attributed to a sort of mating of, you know, basically educated and affluent people marrying one another. And I mean, it's like, that's, you know, that's just how it goes, right? Like, what's, what's you mean the increased or the or the raw inequality? Because I, I think like, I think the raw inequality is just like there's there's just a lot of variance there, right? So like no, two, the, it, it's, it's the increase, yeah, yeah, no, 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 okay, you're, okay. you're right, yeah, it was it was the increase. That's a, yeah, that's a good correction. Um, 
and, and and what's funny is that this is well known, right? Like people know that like, you know, you met, you go to college, you meet people, you whatever, like you date someone there, you date, like you, know, you become a young professional and you stick to that dating pool or, you know, now you're on the apps, but, you know, you sort of filter for the right kinds of people that you like. Um, but then when you point this out, you know, people get very touchy about this. This is another one of those, like everyone understands it, but you're not allowed to talk about it. There was uh, there was this controversy a few years ago. I don't know how long ago this was now, but uh, the Princeton mom uh, controversy where this Princeton alumna, she was a, a, an older woman. She had a daughter at Princeton uh, at the time oh, she wrote this op-ed. Oh, this person who cheated to get in? No, 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 no. This was, this was before that. This, well, I don't know. If it, this was like okay. 20, I want to say like 2013 or something. I read it, you know, after the fact, but it was, I followed this controversy after it had all sort of passed and blown over. But I guess this this uh, older Princeton alumna who had a daughter at Princeton, she wrote an op-ed in the student newspaper basically telling the young Princeton women to find a husband while you're a student there. And her, her reasoning was like, you know, something like, you'll never be around so many eligible bachelors who are worthy of you ever again in your life. Basically saying like, Princeton did all the hard work for you. <laughs> like, they, they know how to pick smart kids. They know how to do this and that and the other. So you should be on the lookout because when you leave, it's going to get harder for you. Because you're never going to be around, you know, interacting with dozens or hundreds of people around your age uh, who are interested in the same things you are, who are sort of uh, in terms of personality and fit and all that stuff. So, yeah, totally. So but then she got she got skewered for this. Right. Like, how dare you tell really? women that they should be getting married? You know, they should be you know, obviously they should be focusing on their careers. Who cares about relationships and romance and marriage? Those things are terrible. You sh- they should be working 100 hours a week and getting into law school. But anyway, so so that was um that was like, you know, the, the the sort of vitriol that was thrown at this 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 woman who was basically just trying to share a piece of wisdom, who was a little bit older, who, you know, had a had a lesson she wanted to impart. Um so, so yeah, I mean, all of this stuff is going on, and yet if you shine a light on it, then suddenly, uh, you know, you see the the claws come out. What's your What's your reaction to that? Like, what's your reaction to this kind of like careerism? Uh, I mean, it's uh, it's tough. I mean, I, on the one hand, I respect it. You know, a lot of the stuff we've been talking about about like sort of competition and talent and working hard and all that stuff. Like, I'm all for it. Like, that's just uh, you know, dispositionally, I'm inclined to like that kind of stuff i i think there's something admirable about like having a mission and working you know 100 hours a week or whatever it is to to fulfilling it but what i'm seeing with careerism and credentialism is like the the goals that people are choosing aren't theirs that's it's you know i I guess this is sort of ties into like the whole girardi and mimetic kind of thing but these a lot of these students are you know they're they're not building their dream or or working toward the thing that they've always wanted they're they're working towards getting into law school not because they love the law or legal philosophy or whatever they're trying to get in because they don't know what else to do and because they know it'll impress other people um or you know getting a job at i don't know jp morgan or something it's not because they love finance some of them do to be fair some people really do love this stuff but i would say more than half are doing it for reasons other than their own desire and i think that is um you know yeah i think the people who are really into finance are working at like jump trading or something they're not doing they're not doing like jp morgan yeah the the, the kind of like super the super like edgy or not edgy but like wild off stuff that's like actually i don't know i don't know that much about jp morgan in particular but it's usually at these kind of like new new things like I, I mean, said, old, old versus new, old versus new. Well, the people <laughs> that I know who are, you know, who are working in 
banking and consulting, finance, like some of them are happy, but they seem to be a minority. Most of the people who work in those fields think of them as like, uh, you know, starting points or temporary or launch pads or whatever. I mean, you know, telling themselves, you know, this is just temporary and I'm just going to work here for a couple of years and save up some money or, you know, get the line on my CV uh, because, you know, it's still, you know, it still looks good to have worked at uh, McKinsey or something. And then you can use that as a, you know, as a pivoting point to do something else. But, you know, I think you get sort of a lot of these people are addicted to prestige and they actually don't know what they want other than prestige. Like prestige becomes an end in itself, even though they're sort of burned out and miserable. Um, and it creates this sort of, uh, you know, spirals of competition, a bunch of people working towards something they don't even want. Yeah, here, here's the thing with like, here's the thing with kind of meeting someone and and this is what i meant by like the reaction to careerism earlier Mm. i i think that like i i don't know i i'm just kind of like very grateful to to even have the kind of skills and the and the opportunity to live in a world where i can just make like a very like maybe not not kind of like not kind of like absurd kind of like billionaire money or like or like um kind of like founder money but like just working like a middle of her class, like software engineering job. Like that's, that's very nice to, for, for me. Like, I, I don't, I don't think that's like, I, I don't think that's a bad fate at all. And it's like, would I rather be kind of like single and like, uh, like a high, high millionaire or something like that? Or would I rather like have a, have a very good partner, uh, who I love being with can have like a long-term relationship with. I think, I think like that is actually much more preferable. And, I don't know if people are really like, I don't know if people are really like lying to themselves there when they, when they say like, really they care about their career. Like how much, how much do you really care about your career? Like how, how much of like a jump do you really need in order to sacrifice something like that? Right. Yeah. This, yeah. I mean, I'm skeptical like of, very sad. you know, career in itself being the, you know, being the driver. I mean, I've, I've cited this statistic in various places about how, um, sociometric status, which is uh, basically defined as respect and admiration from peers, is a stronger predictor of well-being and self-esteem than socioeconomic status. And so I think just a lot of, you know, basically a, a lot of the preoccupation and striving for, you know, occupational success and money and all those kinds of conventional uh, desires. What, what's really going on is that people just want to be liked. You know, they want to be, they want to impress their friends. They want to be admired. They want to, you know, I guess, yeah, maybe they want to attract a romantic partner or something like that. But, you know, I, I, I don't think that the career in and of itself is the goal for, for many people. And yeah, I take your point. I mean, like the, the idea that you can make money, like even me, like just the fact that, that you can make money pressing buttons on a laptop is just like mind blowing to me. You know, like I, I would have never guessed that this is something that you can, you know, that it was like a in the realm of possibility. So, yeah, I mean, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, something that that maybe maybe a lot of people don't don't really um, step back and think about. Just you know, the 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 ability to to do that is just you know something something to to be to be grateful for. I remember during the uh, during the lockdowns or shortly after the lockdowns, I visited my barber. And he was telling me about how, you know, he like he had to shut down his shop. And so like to, to make extra money uh, when all the businesses were closed, he took like some kind of roofing job. And this was like in the winter in England, right here in Cambridge. And Oof. he was like, you know, freezing. You know, my f- fingers were frozen and like, you know, you know, dangers of ice and slipping and all this kind of stuff. And he's like, I'm just so glad to be working inside again. 
And, you know, that was like, oh, yeah, like, yeah, of course, you know, like, but this is something that, you know, if you've only ever worked inside your whole life, that's something you would never think about. Yeah, so what I've been really trying to to think about is how to translate this kind of emerging network structure, which mm-hmm. I think already exists uh, for uh, for for jobs, for opportunities, for intellectual work, and try to translate it to the dating circle because this is kind of like my own own personal kind of like side project or something like that. I don't know. I don't know. Have the language for this, but I basically like am a big fan of basically setting your friends up. And, and trying to like get get good at matchmaking, understand what personality types go together. Hmm. Uh, do, do you have any advice on doing that? Do you th- do you think uh, do you think there you have any tips for doing that? Uh, I mean, just off the top, what I like in terms of personality, surprisingly, you know, I, I looked a little bit at the assortative mating research, and like the big five personality, there's very low correlations between couples on that, like shockingly low. Um, yeah, like, like, like yeah, some of the, like, I think, yeah, some of them weren't even statistically significant. And then the ones that were, they were just like extremely low. So it doesn't seem like personality matters that much. I mean, to be fair, like this was, I don't know when the study was like 2005, maybe things have changed. Um, the things that Isn't did there seem a correlation with like neuroticism and just relationships going badly, uh, like not necessarily like a matching thing, but just like, Oh, interesting. Just, like regardless of Okay. Is, like that's that, that, I, I thought this was a result. That makes sense. I mean, so what? I, what I was thinking of is like concordance between yeah, individuals like and matching. yeah, and and in there, I think neuroticism is not correlated, or maybe it's yeah. But, but the thing is, like correlations are tricky, right? Like, but but in any case, like so so personality maybe not. It makes sense to me though. Like if you have one or two people who are extremely high in neuroticism, that will create difficulties in the relationship. Um, and yeah, I'm sure like if two people are very high in or like one or both in conscientiousness or, or agreeableness that maybe that would, that would help, um, to stabilize the relationship. Um, but in terms of just like concordance between pairs, what I, or between individuals in a, in a romantic pairing, some of them are obvious. And, and these are things that like, you know, you, I guess you would just think anyway, like, so, so one of course is education, you know, extremely high, but this is just goes back to a sort of debating that people who are similarly yeah, educated. How much is this like availability? Like people, people just like meet each other. At university. I, so, so that's I something that I, I'm, I'm wondering about. I mean, you know, back, back during the seventies, I saw this study on, on IQ in married couples and there was a, yeah. So, so I think the average IQ difference between men and women was 10 points um, they didn't specify which way, but I mean, given how things were back then and just like generally how mating tends to work out, I would guess that the man was usually higher, but the average difference was 10 points in IQ. Um, and like, wait, yeah. I, I don't think that that makes any sense because like the mean, the means are the same, right? This is a very well replicated result. Mm-hmm. The means between men and women are the same. Yeah. And unless like, okay, actually there, there's a way where this makes sense, which is basically that like all of a lot the, of men are not getting married. A lot of, yeah. Yeah, a lot of low IQ men are not getting married. Yeah, which, 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 which makes sense too. Yeah, I mean, not everyone was married in 1970, right, or whatever the study was, yeah. 1975. Um, so, so but yeah. it would it would also be that like a lot of low IQ men are not getting married, and like relatively higher IQ women are also not getting married. Which, which I guess maybe makes sense. Which actually does. Yeah, that makes. I mean, there is there was some study. I think it might have been like Jordan Peterson or someone who cited his um you know, something he had said, which is yeah. 
if you're a man, like uh, there's like a, a threshold basically where if you're a man and you're below a certain amount, then your odds of getting married are cut by some number, you know, and, and, and then for women, it's the opposite where like once you're above a certain uh, IQ range, then your likelihood of getting married becomes much more difficult, which so, 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 so yeah, I think there is something there. Um, today, I don't know, though, like I actually don't know if there is uh, much of an IQ difference between between individuals in, in married couples. I would guess it's probably shrunk since the 70s, but I actually don't know. Um, but, but education, right, is, uh, it, and I think, yeah, I take the point though, that, uh, that, that it could be availability where you're just around those kinds of people. But I think like it does, it does capture something, right? Like, you know, it probably indexes a bunch of your sort of interests and curiosity and, um, what, like, like shared background knowledge about various kinds of topics and so forth. Um, and then just sort of general culture and customs and, and all that stuff that just makes things easier to get to know someone. Um, and then, uh, you know, some other interesting ones, height and weight are fairly low in their correlation. They are, but they're very small, um, smaller than I would have expected. Um, so Wait, yeah, I don't, f- I feel like height is not really a correlation. Like I, I feel like in general, uh, women want to date taller men, Yeah, but, and I think like statistically this is true as well. Um, but I don't really see the kind of opposite, right? I don't think like taller men want to date taller women. Uh, like, no, but uh, I think it just naturally happens that way where, you know, if you're a tall woman, you probably only like sort of direct your attention at taller men, like taller men are probably okay to date. But I think even then, right, like, I've never actually had a, a conversation with a particularly tall man about their own height preferences. But I would guess like, even things like leaning down to kiss a woman, right? Like if you're six, four, you probably don't want to date a woman who's five, one, right? Like, I think most guys would be okay. like an average guy would date a five, one woman, fine. But if you're six, four, like that, that might be uncomfortable, right? Like not even just, uh, you know, just, 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 just as a sort of like physical comfort thing. Um, yeah, so I fair. think like that probably has something to do with it. Weight too, right? Like, and I think like that's probably because, you know, overweight people have a difficult time dating. And so they probably do have to date people who are similarly, uh, um, you know, sort of in, in, uh, you know, higher BMI category or whatever. So, so yeah, I mean, the, but, but yeah, have you, have you noticed any, any patterns or, or, or sort of, uh, things that increase success for, for matchmaking? Have I noticed any patterns, things that, um, Hmm. It's a very good question. Uh, I think for for me, it's kind of like, it's weird because I, I usually try to set up people for like long-term relationships, right? I'm, I'm very, I'm very kind of like personally against this kind of like hookup culture stuff. I think it's a waste of time. Um, but I think in general, there's just, just kind of like an underexploited market. It, it's actually, it's, okay, I'm going to like change my language there because I think that's like a very, uh, that's a very bad way to phrase it. It's like an economics way. It's like a technical term, but like, Basically, there are a lot of there are a lot of women who are looking for a type of man who is like not the type of man who would be on like the who would be like typically on the dating market or even like asking other people out or other, and there's a type of of man who's looking for women who would typically also not be on the dating market and who they typically intuitively would not uh, ask out either and so the greatest success I've I've been. I've been having is just like, and here I define success in like at least like getting the relationship started. Not I've gotten zero marriages so far, uh, which is unfortunate. But like th- th- these are like these are like twenty somethings. So so you you can't. I, I still have fingers crossed for some of them. But 
yeah, just just like basically like setting up the, these types of people who who are like maybe more shy, maybe more introverted, uh, maybe more kind of maybe going more shape rotatory, not not too charismatic, but really like deep thinkers. Uh, yeah, I think that's if, if you're at a this this is maybe like a startup you can do. OK, <laughs> if you are like a, a, a person who's very good at making social connections and are also kind of like high IQ um, at a at a top university, then just like find a lot of people who are in these categories, both men and women, and try to like set up some like arranged arranged dates for them. <laughs> Hmm. And and maybe this, this maybe this is like actually like a very profitable uh, uh, enterprise as well. I think because I I feel like the, the people who are in those categories would probably like pay a lot of money for that. I, I think that's like because because it's like genuinely valuable. I think I, I think it's like genuinely valuable. I think I would find myself in one of those categories as well. And and I would like I would pay money for that. That seems like something that would be very beneficial. Dude, people maybe, are having a how- really tough time in dating right now. I mean, like, yeah, I think a lot of people would like, I mean, there, there are a lot of people who we don't hear about, right? Because like, you know, people who love hookup, hookup culture and, and all of this, like they're, they're pretty vocal about it. I mean, to be fair, like a lot of the anti hookup culture people are, are equally vocal, but I think there's just like a, a vast uh, group out there who are interested in just a sort of stable, long-term committed relationship. And it's really hard to find someone who's who's also interested in that same thing, um, right? Because we basically removed all these sort of norms around romance and dating and so forth. And so now no one really knows what anyone else wants. Like it used to be presumed, right? The default was like, you know, you, you, you uh, go out, you date, if you like each other, you keep it going. And then it's supposed to culminate in marriage and kids. And like, that's sort of the path that everyone sort of implicitly understood. But now it's like you know just it's the wild west now where you don't know what the other person has in mind and they don't know what you have and it's all of this is sort of um given rise to this uh this sort of uh sexual uh just just complete like uh rampant hookup culture oh here's the other thing i noticed is that there are like very positive externalities to this because usually if i fail they're still friends like they become friends they don't date yeah. Or like, okay, here's what I mean by fail is like the, the initial spark just isn't there. A mm. lot of the time, if, if they're in like a relationship and they break up, then usually they just break up. It's the same as normal. They just like don't really want to see each other. They have like bad feelings about it afterwards. That That's just like kind of normal, right? Mm. I, I think that's kind of inevitable. But like if, if I fail in the sense that they're 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 not like they don't they're not interested in starting a relationship at all. Usually they're still friends. So, so maybe that's kind of like this kind of like arrangement thing is a positive externality. But yeah, I, I think like if you are someone who can who has like a very good judgment, maybe you also have an understanding of like psychometrics as well. And then you you basically you are a student at at one of these universities. You go around, or like you're a small team of students. You go around, you talk to people, you really get to know them, and and then you like set them up with your with your kind of like combination of intuition and kind of like stats driven metrics. Hmm, like. Yeah, I mean, like, this I is essentially pay, like, like an algorithm, right? Like an OkCupid no, 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 no. algorithm. I think it's much, it's it's much harder than that. It's much harder than like I guess you can can take like their their big O scores, their like IQ, their uh, basically like basically like a dating app, but like a lot more a lot more kind of like psychometricsy. Maybe that can be like a tool, but I don't think so. I think it's a lot more qualitative than that, and I think the qualitative stuff makes a difference. Yeah, maybe. Like you, I think you actually need to know them in order to to set them up. I think that actually improves it a lot. Yeah, that makes sense. 
but this is just like super speculative as well um but yeah you, you guys <laughs> i i know a lot of my audience like they want startup ideas like please please do it <laughs> um I, I i would pay for you guys i i, I mean i i could think of working on this maybe but like there are too many there are so many other things to do anyways anyways we're almost out of time so here's the last question of the show question of the show always is uh what is something that has too much order and needs more chaos or is too much chaos and needs more order <laughs> this is uh this is a very uh, peterson-esque question here um something that has well i mean i think we've been talking a lot about one which is the the dating market i think there's too much chaos and it definitely needs more order um and then, yeah, I mean, something that has more yeah, too much order and needs more chaos. Um, I mean, I don't know. I think I'm just inclined toward order, so it's uh, it's difficult for me to to say to find the the reverse. But but definitely, right now, I think um, what's happening with with young people and dating is just um, it's really tragic, honestly. Like no one is happy with this, you know. Like I think implicitly, you know, especially oh, like the criticism. Oh, if you hear guys talking about the dating thing, whatever, it's like somehow anti-feminist or whatever but like if you look at the polling women have said that dating has gotten harder in the last 10 years since the rise of dating apps you know roughly correlates with that and so women are extremely like many of them are extremely displeased too like no one is happy with the current state of things i mean it's pretty wild that uh you know the whole idea i think i i, I can't remember who Tara Henley has a really good Substack, and she recently interviewed someone about this, uh, this very question here about like how it's possible that, you know, there was supposed to be this whole sexual liberation thing, whatever. And what happened instead is that like we all kind of defaulted into like this very male uh, uh, preference about like short term fleeting, like no strings, emotionless sex that just sort of leaves you feeling cold. Like even even as a male, right? Like it's it's like fun when you're like really young and like not really that interested in anything serious. But even like a lot of guys too are not really happy with what's happening too. So yeah, I think uh, whether it's the app you're talking about or or new norms that arise or something, um, you know, somehow I think more order could be imposed and people would be a lot happier than than whatever we have now. All right, thanks, Rob, for coming on the show. All right, thanks, Cactus. That was my interview with Rob Henderson. As always, if you really liked a moment of the show, then please let a friend know, either on social media or in person. Your recommendation goes uniquely far. I really had an enjoyable moment near the end of that podcast. I think thinking about the optimistic things that we can do, what we can really do to change the lives in our ordinary environments there's a lot that we can just go out and do. And that's probably going to be the story of Gen Z. As always, if you like the show, let us know as well. Leave a review and or suggest some further guests for the show. And as always, we'll have another great episode for you next week.